From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Breaking Bread Today, our series of conversations with Coloradans across the political divide. A divide they think is exaggerated. I feel the political parties use sensationalism to divide and conquer. With two Trump supporters and two people who'd like him out of office, impeachment came up, but things got really interesting when they talked about the racist label. I think it's one of those poisonous words that you better be real careful when you apply it. People fight with each other all the time over these words in a way that negates each other's humanity. President Trump could have united our country, And he could have had a lot of support if they didn't play divisive politics, if they tried to embrace the African-American, Muslim, Latino communities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hi, Hi. you. How are you? I'm good. I'm better now that you guys are all here. All right. We have sandwiches. Sit wherever you'd like. It kind of seems like we're old friends. We started our Breaking Bread series after the 2016 election, getting people of different political stripes to talk to each other, maybe even come to an understanding. How was the drive, Annette? Uh, I got here at 10. Oh! I was a little early. (laughs) Faster than you anticipated. Annette Gonzalez lives in the Pueblo area and takes care of several of her grandchildren. She voted for President Trump, and we invited her back along with three other members of our group. So this is where the magic happens, huh? That's Mehdi Khan, who lives with his wife and young daughter in Aurora. He's an engineer, Muslim, voted for Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. Have you guys not been in the studio no. before? We were in the lobby. The we first are, right. Adam Brock chiming in there, a local food activist from Westminster who does consulting for nonprofits. He voted for Clinton, too. Now, typically, we're in a more comfortable setting, like around a dinner table, but we needed to connect with a final guest on the phone. And so late last week, we crammed into Studio 2A. Okay, here, we're getting Sandy. Hello, Russell. Hi, Sandy. It's Ryan at CPR. Hi, Ryan. And we have Mehdi and Annette and Adam. Say hello. Can you all hear her? Hello. Yeah, hi, Sandy. How are you? How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Missing you. (laughs) Wish you could have been here. Yeah. Sandy Russell had a last-minute scheduling conflict and was on the line from her home in Palmer Lake, north of Colorado Springs. She's a Republican. Her husband served in the military. So do her children. Sandy is a clinical counselor and supports Trump. As folks got settled, I told them about a story I did a while back about a group called More in Common, whose goal is to reduce political polarization. Their lead researcher, Stephen Hawkins, is based in Colorado, and he has found that most people aren't on the extreme left or right, even though Twitter might make you think so. In fact, his surveys show that most of us fall into what he has dubbed the exhausted majority. We all listen to the clip you're about to hear together. The exhausted majority represents Americans who feel that they're fatigued by politics today. They feel like their voices aren't particularly well represented by the parties or by the media. These are people who are a little bit more flexible in their political views, less ideologically rigid. And they're people who want to see a resolution to some of the division in our country. They're people who say, I want my side to listen and to find points of compromise rather than I just want them to defeat the other side. I saw at least one person nodding his head yes, and that's Mehdi. (laughs) 
That is exactly how I feel. I don't think I fit into one box. I don't think anybody does. Um, but I feel the political parties use sensationalism and, you know, labels to divide and conquer. And I think the majority of Americans are sick of that. Are you feeling exhausted? Yeah, I don't pay attention to the politics too much anymore. I mean, I hear everything Trump says, but for me, it's more of the same. Anyone else want to share uh, some thoughts about whether they see themselves as part of an exhausted majority? I'm tired of all the fear-mongering. This is Annette. Each side trying to scare the other side to make their point, and always a, it's an alert, it's a you know big old announcement, and it turns out to be more of the same. So I, I'm pretty worn out too, but I keep up on a daily basis. I have my favorite podcasters and YouTubers and things like that, because things are so accelerated. Sandy? Yes. I'm both exhausted and I'm angry, and it's because... The loud screamers are getting the attention, kind of like the rowdy child in the class uh, gets the attention while the nice, well-mannered ones are there to learn, uh, sit, and it just makes a tremendous divide. And the guilty party in all of this, as I see it, is the media. Amen. All right. You know, I'm certainly a member of the news media, so I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that smarts just a little bit, but there seemed to be some agreement around what uh, Sandy just said there. Adam, do you want to share any thoughts on either the news media or the exhausted majority? Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that everybody, at least all all four of us, can agree that, that TV media, because it relies on ratings, it goes with whatever story is going to rile people up and sensationalize them. I also think social media is is really to blame because now not only do we have TV and radio and print media, but... But so much of our news these days comes from Facebook or Twitter, and those are also designed, just it's built into their very algorithm to amplify the things that rile our emotions. You know, I, I used to use it all the time to just see what my friends were up to and to look at events and things like that, and I just can't even go on there. I don't want to look at it because it you just feels so... You don't want to be so... shamed either. Yeah, exactly. Be, for, for being a Trump supporter, you can't put a bumper sticker on your car, you can't put a yard sign out in your yard. I have several t-shirts. I've gotten some really dirty looks from wearing my t-shirts, but I've also gotten some good conversations going too. And I think that's so unfair that the majority of the media comes down on the Democratic liberal side, whatever you want to say. And those of us who listen to alternative news sources are called conspiracy theorists and things like that. It's like our opinion doesn't matter because it doesn't flow with what they call the majority. You know, there's a part of me that thinks, is it possible that the media are also reflecting that kind of spirit in Washington. In other words, it's a kind of a chicken or egg phenomenon to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly don't think that the media is the one and only source of all the problems in our country today. I think it, it just accelerates, it acts as a catalyst kind of for some of the things that have been going on, in, you know, for decades in some cases. The conversation turned to what each thinks of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Honestly, no surprises there. Annette Gonzalez and Sandy Russell think there isn't enough proof of quid pro quo with Ukraine to get dirt on Trump's political rival Joe Biden. That's despite testimony from some in the administration to the contrary. Mehdi Khan thinks impeachment should have happened sooner. And Adam Brock agrees it's time. Then to the U.S. withdrawal of troops from northern Syria and the ensuing attack on the Kurds. 
Democrats and Republicans alike have criticized President Trump for that decision. The New York Times reports he ordered the withdrawal knowing the CIA and special forces were zeroing in on the leader of ISIS in that region. President Trump announced over the weekend Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had blown himself up during a nighttime raid by U.S. special forces. Now, that raid transpired after our breaking bread gathering. Sandy Russell, again on the phone from her home in Palmer Lake, brought up her daughter, who's a JAG officer, kind of part soldier, part attorney. Sandy doubts Trump acted on Syria without input. That isn't only the president's decision. That is the decision of generals, boots on the ground. My daughter has deployed five times during all of this warfare. Her forte is to look at if we do this, what happens over here, and you can bet that he has a very fine-tuned JAG Corps that is advising him every step of the way. So I have confidence that he has gotten good legal advice, good military advice, and he's doing what boots on the ground are telling him is the best decision. And the administration says this is an example of a fight, a battle abroad that he doesn't want uh, U.S. troops to be a part of. And he has vowed, that was one of his campaign promises, was to get us out of all these foreign wars and let these people handle their business themselves. Before he went on his racist tirades, that was one of the reasons I had supported him. Can we refer to him as alleged racist? Because we've changed our vocabulary completely, you know, as to what exactly a racist is. You haven't proved That I'm this, that, or the other. When you say people from Mexico are rapists and murderers and some may be good people, that's a generalization of an entire population. Complete ban of Muslims entering the country, that is racist. I'm curious to the heart of this. You know, Annette is expressing concern at the, the use of this term racist. Tell me about your use of that, Mehdi. President Trump could have united our country. And he could have had a lot of support. The GOP could have had a lot of support if they didn't play divisive politics, if they tried to embrace the African-American, Muslim, Latino communities instead of pushing them away. And Annette, when you hear the term racist applied to the president, do you think it's ever warranted? I think it's one of those poisonous words that you better be real careful when you apply it and you better have something to back it up. You know, it is not an accepted fact by everybody in America, as evidenced, just one example of everybody showing up to his Trump rallies. You know, even people that aren't really Republicans, but people that are tired of all the garbage and the mudslinging and the lack of fairness that show up at those things to say, you know, let's hear what he has to say. Speaking of the rallies, you know, there was that chant for a while, send her back. That was a reference to some of the Democratic Congress members. And I wondered when I heard that, um, you know, there's, there's a contrast between the civility in these conversations in Breaking Bread and the feel uh, sometimes of the president's messaging of even those rallies at times. And I thought to myself, I wonder if Annette or I wonder if Sandy, present at one of those rallies, would have chanted something like, send her back, which many people perceived as racist. I would not do that. I, I do not feel comfortable with that. Yeah, and I wouldn't either. But you know what? That's the American people speaking. That is the way that we do things. Everybody's got that First Amendment. They have a right to say, you know, we rescued you, so to speak, you know, um, being a refugee and and you came to America and you went to school, you know, college and you got your degree. And now look where you sit. 
in Congress, you know, and, and you're sounding a lot like an ungrateful brat. Why should she be grateful? It was her and her family's efforts that led to that. There's always Why this, shouldn't she be grateful there was a country willing to take her? There's always this... Uh, and give her all those opportunities. You're talking about Elon Omar, I think. Yes. Elon Omar. There's always this belief that minority communities should be thankful for their opportunities or where they sit. There's no respect given to the history of those areas where they may come from, the legacy of colonialism that led to those countries being in the position they are today. And there's a lack of respect for the um, hard work of those individuals to become congresspeople. Why shouldn't they be grateful for the country they, that took them oh yeah, in they, they are and grateful. allowed them the opportunities? Ilan Omar, Omar loves America. All she said <clears throat> was that a foreign government is committing human rights violations, and that is always conflated as being anti-Semitic. But is that our business at the moment? Is that what she was elected to do, or was it to pay attention to America and what's well, going on because, in America? Well, because Israel receives so much U.S. aid and billions and billions of dollars. Could I actually... Yeah, Adam, um, you, you, you are always so good at sitting back <laughs> and taking it all in. Well, I just, I love listening to all of these different perspectives, but... Because we're talking about Israel, I wanted to bring up something that I've been thinking about, which, first of all, I want to say I'm I'm a Jew. I was born and raised here in Colorado, but so many of my Jewish community has such a strong connection to Israel. And what I've observed with what's happened with Israel and Palestine is in some ways kind of what I see happening in the kind of liberal side of our politics. I understand where you're coming from, Annette, with this idea of labels and there being like one right way to do things. And if you're not right, you're evil. Because what I think happened in Israel is that, you know, after so many centuries of oppression, Jews finally got their own state. And it was such a a beautiful thing. And in their really heartfelt desire to protect that state, they turned into oppressors themselves. And sometimes what I see happening on the left is that same dynamic. You mean the left in the United States? The left in the United States. Where do you see that, Adam? Well, I see it in this rigid enforcement of political correctness, labeling people, whether it's racist or woke or whatever, you're with us or you're against us because of the words you use. If you're um, you know, not using the right language, which is different than the language it was five years ago, then you're, you're insensitive. And it's complicated for Toxic. me because, because I steadfastly believe in all of those things that have become labeled as politically correct. I personally believe that, you know, like Mehdi was saying, the the statements that Trump was saying were racist. And I, I believe that he is a racist. But I've seen even within the left in America, forgetting the whole conservative side of things, people, you know, fight with each other all the time over these words in a way that negates each other's humanity. May I ask, what makes you believe that our president is racist? To me, racism... You don't have to consciously hate another group to be racist. And this is one of those weird things where I feel like the definition of racism has changed in the last 10, 15 years. And it's still a very loaded term. But I'm racist sometimes. It's not like I want to be. But, you know, if I'm walking down the street at night and I'm, I'm by myself and I see a black person walking down towards me, even if I won't cross the street, maybe I might have an instinct to that I have to check. I think that's a racist instinct. 
And so it's a learned behavior. Yeah, it's a learned behavior. And so because of President Trump's background and the people he's surrounded himself with and the things his advisors tell him, maybe he, he really believes that the immigrants coming across the border are all gang members and rapists. But if that's not grounded in reality and the lived experience and it's, it's based on a stereotype, I do believe that that's racist. Sandy, is it your perception that President Trump has never said a racist thing? Oh, no. I, uh, he definitely has said things that are inappropriate and are just going to make life really difficult for him. But I do not think President Trump is racist. I think he's raw. I think he's crude. I think he speaks the way he does purposely. I think he's a very smart man because I think people are responding the way that he intended them to respond. That is counselor and Trump supporter Sandy Russell in Breaking Bread, our gathering of Coloradans with different political views. Also with us, Adam Brock, Mehdi Khan, and Annette Gonzalez. When we come back, their thoughts on 2020. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Three states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana, something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to Breaking Bread, a series we began after the 2016 election. Coloradans of different political stripes sit down together over a meal. This time it was pretty unglamorous. Sandwiches, chips, and a soda in our studio so that we could patch in Sandy Russell by phone. Russell and Annette Gonzalez are fans of President Trump. Mehdi Khan and Adam Brock are not. I would love to ask each of you if you think that there is an issue you care about that is getting eclipsed. I think the red flag laws are Second Amendment, right? I think that he should be speaking to that big time. You know, the first thing you do is you take away their freedom of of, uh, speech and then you take away their guns and then you got the population where you want them and you do whatever you want with them. I think that that red flag law should be repealed immediately in every state that it's in. It's in our constitution. It's our God-given right to protect ourselves, our property, our families. It's interesting because the president uh, at one point, though he has walked it back, was interested in making red flag laws uh, in a way the law of the land. Right. And, and he walked it back because so many of his supporters say, oh, no, you didn't. And you were one of them? Oh, yes. Annette? I'm a Second Amendment believer big time. Adam? So uh, I think an issue that people are starting to talk about, and, and I'm encouraged to see that people on both sides are talking about it, but still isn't getting enough attention, is corporate consolidation. I think people are starting to talk about it in, in the technology world with you know things like Amazon and Facebook and Google and, and how much power they have. So I'm glad that that's happening. I think I'd love to see that happen in lots of other sectors as well, in the agricultural sector, in um, the brick and mortar retail sector. I think so much of what I think is harming our society and, and exacerbating these divisions 
is the fact that these giant corporations are controlling flows of wealth and impoverishing uh, their workers at the benefit of their shareholders. Sandy, what is an issue you think gets short shrift? I would like to know where uh, the president is on the wall. I would like to have that front and center again as to, okay, you gave so much dialogue to this. What's happening? What's going on now? All right, Mehdi. I would say corporate personhood. The fact that corporations are really the ones who are buying politicians on both sides of the aisle. And you would solve a lot of problems in this country if corporations were not allowed to donate so much money and pass laws that benefit them and not the American people. Not dissimilar to what Adam said. Yeah. All right, let's wrap up with 2020. I think it's fair to say, based on what I've heard, uh, that, uh, Sandy, your vote is with the president. That's not changing. That has not changed, no. Annette, I'm going to guess the same for you. You are Trump pleased. 2020. All right. <laughs> yeah, buddy. And I'm interested uh, from Adam and Mehdi what um, you're thinking about the 2020 crop of candidates and uh, where yeah. your heads are. I'll just start and say I've tried to keep a, a close eye on the debates and, and other things the candidates have said. I think there's a lot of them that excite me. I think the one for a long time that I felt most drawn to is, is Elizabeth Warren, and I've been excited to see her continue to gain more and more support. I don't know too much about Elizabeth Warren, but I would go with uh, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren for sure. You say that you'd go with Elizabeth Warren, that you don't much... Well, but I don't know much, too much about her, but I know that she agrees, her views are aligned quite a bit with Bernie's views. Mm-hmm. And um, socialism? What do you think about see, that? See, the, the label socialism, every time I people say that, I always ask them... What but do he you calls think about, himself a socialist. What do you think about social security? Against it or for it? That's social, it's socialism. Socialism is taken from the top and redistributing it to everybody. And nobody gets more than anybody else. And in socialist countries, by definition, or just by example, recently, Venezuela and different ones, um, doesn't work. It's the same. Social Security and Medicare for all would be the same. You tax everybody so you can get everybody, you know, Medicare for all. You know, words like socialism and racism and, and capitalism, for that matter, mean so many different things to so many different people. And I think that's why these conversations get so hard is because when you say socialism, that means something different than when I say it, when Bernie says it, when Mehdi says it. Um, I have to say, just as a member of the press, like this term socialism, it's another of the labels that we have been talking about. I I do find that it stops debate. It stops debate on details of health care or details of one plan versus another. Let's bring that out. Socialism, Cuba, Venezuela. Yes, it's a label. You make associations that shouldn't be there. Check out the facts and check out the history and how successful are they in taking care of their people, taking right. care of the uh, all of the issues you're talking about, health and what have you. So is that the country, you the vision we have for this country? Well, Scandinavian countries, I think, have health care for all, and they're great. And yeah, so, Sandy, when you ask that question, what countries come to mind, for me, the first countries that come to mind are not Cuba and Venezuela. They're, they're Norway and Denmark. Yeah, we're not talking about, you know, clamping down on freedom of press or different political views. We're talking about taking care of the American people. Thanks to all of you. Grab a cookie on your way out if you haven't had one yet. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. <laughs> Bye, Sandy. Bye, Sandy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sandy. I hope I wasn't uh, too harsh or anything. I apologize <laughs> if I was. But, you know, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you.
Mehdi Khan of Aurora, Adam Brock of Westminster, Annette Gonzalez of Pueblo, and Sandy Russell of Palmer Lake. They occasionally break bread together on the radio to talk through their political differences. The environment was positively giddy when scientists took the stage last week at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. They were there to announce a big fossil discovery. Here's a taste. So welcome to uh, one of the most important days. This could very well be the most important day in the history of the museum. Do I still get excited when I see these fossils? Absolutely. (laughs) And with a swing of his hammer, Tyler cracked the fossil code. After three years of scrabbling through dirt and rock near Colorado Springs, they think they've answered some big questions. What happened 66 million years ago after an asteroid wiped out 90% of life on Earth? And how did that pave the way for people? This all began when our guest Tyler Leeson broke open that rock we heard about. It's called a concretion. The aha moment was when I picked one of these concretions up and cracked it with my rock hammer and opened it up and saw a mammal skull staring back at me. Leeson writes about the project in the journal Science. Nova is also making a documentary about this. And Tyler, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. Let's start 66 million years ago when that asteroid hit. Sounds like there wasn't much left Paint me a picture before and after. Yeah, so before the asteroid struck, about 66.03 million years ago, I mean, Colorado would have looked very different than it is today. For example, there'd be no snow on the ground. Um, But if there would have been giant dinosaurs, T-Rex, Triceratops, some of our favorite dinosaurs roaming the landscape, very lush forests. Uh, The Rocky Mountains would have just been starting to come up uh, around this interval of time. And then that fateful day, 66.02 million years ago, the giant meteorite the size of uh, about Mount Everest, six miles wide, smacks into Earth uh, at the Yucatan Peninsula. And this is the single worst day for multicellular life on Earth. Uh, it's the biologic reset button. Uh, life will never be the same. So basically, in a blink of an eye, dinosaurs go extinct. You know, it's the end of the age of the reptiles, and we begin the very, very earliest age of the mammals. Where we, you know, the, in the earliest aftermath, we have the forests are gone, and the, the forests are replaced with a blanket of ferns. So the world would have turned green again almost immediately huh. uh, within the first decades to years. But it wouldn't have been with forests. It would have been with very, very small ferns. The largest mammal to survive this extinction is about the size of a rat. Very, very small animals that, uh, that sort of eke out an existence in the immediate aftermath of, the, of this mass extinction. It is remarkable to me that an asteroid of that size and impact... Uh, would have been followed by life that quickly. That is remarkable. Well, let's let's fast forward, way forward, to just three years ago when this project started. You were working in an area called Corral Bluffs, east of Colorado Springs. What was your mission there? How does it connect to the asteroid? So one of the things that I'm interested in is just this particular mass extinction, the extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs. 
So when I got a job here about five years ago here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, I, my colleague and I, Dr. Ian Miller, set out to go and visit all the, place, the nearby places that preserved this moment in time, the uh, Cretaceous Paleogene mass extinction event. And so Corral Bluffs, this area just on the outskirts of Colorado Springs, has that moment in time preserved. Hmm. And over the last 100 years or so, uh, there have been a, you know, a few fossils that have been found from this interval of time. So I thought, well, let's go check it out. Let's go see what uh, Corral Bluffs has to offer. We'll break this down in a moment to find uh, or learn what you found and how that kind of aha moment. But w- tell me why this matters, what it reveals perhaps about our lives now. Yeah, this is one of the most critical intervals in Earth's history. I mean, any time there are five major mass extinction events in in Earth's history, and this is the most recent one. And at any time you have a mass extinction event, it completely changes the course of life on Earth. So for why this one matters for us, I mean, for starters, we would not be having this conversation if it were not for that moment, for that asteroid that struck Earth. Um, humans would not have come, come about. Uh, you know, mammals were about the size, the largest mammals were about the size of a raccoon for huh. the entire age of the dinosaurs. You know, dinosaurs dominate the planet for 150 million years. And then that moment comes where the asteroid strikes, you know, strikes Earth and causes the extinction of the dinosaurs. And that's really what paved the way for, for us. Um, in that immediate aftermath, mammals and birds and other life forms are the ones that sort of take over in terms of dominance. Uh, birds really diversify in that first one million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs, and as do placental mammals, which includes us. So some of our earliest, earliest ancestors can be traced all the way back to uh, the survivors of that mass extinction event. Okay, and, and you say there have been several mass extinction events in our history. Are, are we in one now? Because we read a lot of news stories about the extinction of species. Do you consider us to be in one now? I wonder if that plays into some of your interests today. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of different sources of data that suggest that we are living through Earth's sixth mass extinction okay. event. And I certainly think those data are strong. And I think that's one of the reasons why th- my particular study is relevant is that it's it's good to know like how long does it take for an ecosystem to bounce back after one of these mass extinction events and this was very much an open question prior to this particular study so i do think it is relevant for humans today i think you know and the other relevant thing is is that in all five of the previous mass extinctions it's always the dominant group that gets knocked out hmm. and then something else takes takes over okay and, and <laughs> we, we and may be humans. the dinosaurs we may be the dinosaurs of today is that what i hear you saying absolutely okay. that is a great analogy okay. <laughs> you're listening to colorado matters i'm ryan warner and uh tyler Leeson joins as paleontologist and curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Uh, the museum has just opened an exhibit about his project uh, called After the Asteroid, Earth's Comeback Story, based on his research outside Colorado Springs, which has proven revelatory. And we wanted to keep Tyler safe 
today because the roads are so cruddy. He joins us on a less than stellar phone line, but it's a fascinating story. And I want to get to the aha moment, back to this term concretions. How is that different from the traditional way we think of finding fossils? As a vertebrate paleontologist, we're trained to go out and look for scraps of bone or isolated teeth. And then we essentially follow, you know, the bone trail up the hill. And if we're lucky, we'll see bits of of a fossil sticking out of the side of the hill. Uh And that's where we start digging. Concretions are very different because there you have fossils inside of a rock. So a concretion is uh, just a type of a rock. It's a bit like a a pearl in a a shell, an oyster shell. Mm. And the pearl, in this case, are these magnificent fossils. And the concretions oftentimes don't look like much. And that's why people overlooked these fossils uh, for just about 100 years and going back to folks from the Smithsonian that came out here over 100 years ago. The fossils were inside of these, these sort of nondescript-looking rocks, and these rocks were mixed in with a bunch of other rocks. So finding fossils from this, this particular place uh, is quite difficult. But once we realized that the fossils were inside this specific type of concretion, it was an amazing moment. So we cracked open that concretion. I saw a mammal skull staring back at me. And then my colleagues and I look across the landscape and we see the same type of rock that just preserved this amazing, you know, the most complete fossil from this interval of time that I had ever found my previous prior 20 years of, of searching from this interval of time. And we could see this type of rock just scattered across the landscape. And it was one of the most remarkable moments of my life as my colleagues and I ran around and gently opened up one concretion after another. And we found so many amazing fossils in that first hour and ensuing week of uh, work out of Corral Bluffs. I mean, I just think this speaks to all of our desires to find buried treasure. I mean, you know, down to just Easter eggs, like the pleasure of opening something up and finding something inside or Russian dolls or something like that. <laughs> and and um, d- does that mean then that somehow the rock grew around the fossils? Like, can we attribute this to about the same time the Rockies are forming, maybe? Yeah, so the Rockies were coming up at this interval of time. And I, we do think the Rockies may have played a role, uh, the Rocky Mountains have, may have played a role in the, the preservation of these amazing fossils, simply because you had all these rivers flowing off these newly forming Rocky Mountains and flooding rapidly to bury these fossils quite quickly. Mm. So we think rapid burial played a very important role in the preservation of uh, these fossils. And then the concretions actually formed a little bit later after after they were buried. And do you develop a kind of spidey sense for concretions? Like you, you talk about seeing one, cracking it open, revealing what was inside and then looking at the landscape and then kind of developing a gut sense like, oh, that's probably a concretion. There's probably something hidden in that one, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And it takes a while to to develop that spiny sense, if you will. Uh-huh. I've taken colleagues out there who... Uh, who are sort of new to the concretion game and uh, have, have, you know, haven't had as much success as I have with, with finding some of the fossils. So there, it's the sort of the, the subtleties of the concretion of finding 
the one that just has the right shape or the right color. Uh, that's really what we're looking for out there. And once again, uh, this discovery gives us a sense of how Earth and life bounced back after the giant asteroid. And you have created a kind of, I don't know if it's a mnemonic device, but a way of describing how life bounced back. You call uh, one the palm period, the next one the pecan pie period, and then the protein bar phase. So the, the palm period makes sense to me. That's what you described when palms were bouncing back, kind of small vegetation. What the heck is, is the pecan pie period? Yeah, so for, a hundred, for the first 300,000 years after that mass extinction event, the world is completely dominated by palm trees. It's this really bizarre forest. Hmm. Uh, but right at 300,000 years, the, the forests start to re-diversify again. They start to come back. There's more types of trees and types of plants. So what happens is trees eventually diversify enough that they start to grow nuts. And that explains the pecan pie period of things. And then the protein bar means that you're starting to get like the first legumes. And so eventually, yeah, there's enough like protein in the environment that we start getting things that look more like, you know, what's around today. Yeah, so at 100 or 700,000 years after the impact, we find the oldest legume fossil in the world. And legumes are rich in protein, so that's why we have dubbed it this a protein bar moment. And at that exact same interval of time, we find the largest mammals uh, on the landscape, about 100 pounds, maybe the, about the size of a wolf. And to just put that in perspective, that's a hundredfold increase in body size compared to the mammals that survived the mass extinction, going from one pound to over 100 pounds in less than 700,000 years after the meteorite struck Earth. Just as we wrap up here, I understand it was a high school intern who helped discover like the remnant of one of these legumes. It's amazing to me that a legume can survive that amount of time. Yeah, this this, this uh, whole discovery is just riddled with these amazing stories of uh, discovery. And it was indeed a high school, a teen science scholar who found the world's oldest legume. Oh and the smile that she had on her face just sums up this discovery so well. Tyler, <laughs> what a pure joy. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Tyler Leeson, paleontologist and curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. The museum just opened an exhibit about his team's project. The show's called After the Asteroid, Earth's Comeback Story. If you want a ballot in the mail for next month's election, today is the deadline to register. Otherwise, you can register and vote in person up to and on Election Day. Now, when John Weber of Littleton got his ballot, he noticed something odd, and he asked about it through Colorado Wonders. So I'm looking at the ballot, and all the ballot measures are written in completely uppercase characters. And that's actually much harder to read than the mixed case. In social media, they'd call that shouting. And it's not all caps everywhere on the ballot. No, the members up for uh, election, they're in mixed case, like you'd expect. 
from everything we've been taught, the mixed case makes it much easier to read. In fact, the separate case just makes it almost discourages anybody from reading the ballot measures. Weber is right. According to typographers, we simply read more lowercase text, so we're used to it. And variation helps our brain with word recognition. So why on earth would all caps appear on a ballot, the cornerstone of democracy? And why only sometimes? Secretary, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on. For answers, John and I rang up Colorado's Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold. So, Jen, I'm looking at the official coordinated election ballot for Arapahoe County, and what I notice about it is that all the state measures are written completely in capital letters. Proposition CC, Proposition DD, et cetera, et cetera. We've all grown up using the mixed case, and there is some things that are on this that are mixed case. Why is this done? Believe it or not, it's mandated by the Colorado Constitution. So an article of the Constitution, commonly known as the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR for short, generally requires that the state of Colorado and all political subdivisions submit tax and debt increases to voters. And a section of TABOR requires that those ballot issues appear on the ballot in uppercase letters. It is written in to TABOR, which is in the state Constitution, that any tax increases Uh, be asked in all caps, you're saying? That's exactly right. Section 3C of Tabor. Uh, So the drafters of Tabor must have had the opposite inclination, uh, thinking that if something's in caps, uh, it grabs people's attention. Well, now, of course, the creators of Tabor, Jenna Griswold, were not necessarily big fans of taxation. Uh, Is it possible that what they wanted to do was dissuade people from voting yes on tax increases? Uh, Well, I I won't try to guess what they were thinking when drafting. Okay, understandably, Secretary Griswold doesn't want to speculate. So I reached someone who wouldn't have to. This is the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, and the purpose of that and the mailed election notices and the capitalization of the ballot title is simply to alert people. Douglas Bruce is considered the father of Tabor, which passed in 1992. CPR even made a podcast about him and the enormous influence he's had on the state. Indeed, Bruce wanted tax increases to stand out to voters. To draw to their attention. This is not just an ordinary, you know, issue about shall we prevent the spring hunting of bears or, you know, shall we rename a park from Smith to Jones or something. This is about the government taking a bigger share of our money rather than just the normal growth rate that they get automatically. That's why it's capitalized. It's an alert simply to tell people that. Do you want your children to have to repay debt that they don't get to vote on? Do you want to have the government taking a bigger share of your money through this tax increase of a specific dollar amount? That's why... It's capitalized as a means of grabbing people's attention, frankly. Was there any thought back then that something that was capitalized, not not only might it draw more attention, was there some sense that perhaps people would be less likely to vote for something? Of course. Of course. This is the Tabor Amendment is hostile to tax increases. It doesn't prohibit them, but it says people need to be warned. They have a warning when they sign a petition out in front of Walmart, and that's a warning in red ink and capital letters, 
you know, be sure that you read this before you sign it and so forth. Well, this is in effect saying, be sure you read this and are aware of the nature of it before you sign it. And that's why we also require in the Constitution that the title starts with certain language. In the case of a tax rate increase or a new tax, shall state taxes be increased $100 million annually or whatever the number is. Douglas Bruce there. And John, what do you make of what you've heard? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, uh, you know, the law is the law, and I guess you have to comply with that. John Weber of Littleton asked his question through Colorado Wonders, where you're welcome to ask us anything about this state. We'll try to find the answer. Head over to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders to share what puzzles you. Sticking with the election now, outside groups are spending millions of dollars to sway Colorado voters this November on a key tax question that would affect how much the state budgets. CPR's Benta Berkland went out with the campaigns as they make their final pitch to voters. There aren't any major candidates on the ballot this fall. So if you find someone knocking on your door this political season, there's a good chance they want to talk to you about one thing. Hello, my name is Kane. I'm with uh, Prop CC. I'm just going to pass this on to you. It's uh, actually on the ballot coming up November. All across the state, supporters and opponents of this measure, which the legislature put on the ballot, are out trying to win over voters. We are asking you to please vote no. Consider voting no on Proposition CC. Are you familiar with Proposition CC? Proposition CC asks whether Colorado should get rid of its revenue limit that caps how much tax money the state can keep. Anything over this limit is returned to taxpayers. It's a central part of the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, known as TABOR, that voters passed in the early 90s, as supporters describe it. It's about spending our tax monies that they already taken towards education and fixing the road. So keep it in mind, all right? All right, thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Kane Randolph is canvassing in central Denver, generally targeting registered Democrats. Dan Hammes answered one of the doors Randolph knocked on. He's retired and moved here two years ago from Chicago. This was his first time hearing about Prop CC. I consider myself conservative overall, but in a case like this, you know, I believe schools are important and certainly wouldn't have any problems supporting the schools or infrastructure with money that sounds like is already, already spent. Paid for it. Yeah. yeah, it's already, you are, they already took it. And that's the cool thing about this is there's no tax hike to make this happen. For backers of CC, this is the big thing. Instead of raising new money for roads and schools, they're asking voters to let the state keep what it's collected instead of refunding it. If it passes, Prop CC would add $310 million to the next state budget. Opponents, like Heather Williamson, with the conservative group Americans for Prosperity, see it differently. Are you familiar with Proposition CC? I will be, if I'm not now. Okay. Well, it weakens our Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR. Have oh, you heard of TABOR? So that's the one on TABOR? Yes. And so it's a tax increase? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. It allows the government to keep your refund in perpetuity. Yes. So it's a tax increase? Yes. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Got it. Can we count on you to vote no? I think so, yeah. Wonderful. That'd be yeah. great. Okay. And about if it fails, Tabor refunds would stay in place, and people would get tax refund checks next year, ranging from 26 to $90. I think it's condescending 
when proponents belittle the amount of the refund. Political consultant Dick Wadhams is the former GOP state party chair. He says the Yes campaign is disconnected from everyday Coloradans who could use that money. Even beyond that, Coloradans understand, they've shown this by their behavior and other issues, it is worthwhile to restrain the power and the scope and cost of government. Voters have never approved a general statewide tax increase, but did pass an initiative similar to Prop CC back in 2005. It allowed the state to spend surplus tax money for five years. It was billed as a timeout from Tabor. And unlike this initiative, had high-profile Republican backers. This time, the debate is largely falling along party lines. Michael Fields is working to defeat Prop CC and says there's no guarantee the money will always go to education and roads. And notes, these changes are forever. I think that they could use that money on whatever they want to. It's a blank check and that it's permanent. For others, the cost of inaction is too great. Carol Hedges leads the progressive Colorado Fiscal Institute. She believes Tabor has done lasting damage to Colorado and thinks others agree. I, I just think that the, that frustration is pretty high right now with having, you know, arguably the best economy in the country and still being below the national average in funding for schools and having really crowded highways. Hedges Group is working to potentially put a full Tabor repeal on the 2020 ballot, which means regardless of what happens with this initiative, the fight over Prop CC could just be the warm-up act for a much bigger Tabor showdown next year. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. It's CPR News.